On this episode of The Wharton Current, I sat down with Wharton grad Reg Riley, CEO of Origin Materials, a net carbon negative materials company. Join us as we talk about what it takes for a materials company to be carbon negative, how Origin Materials is commercializing and scaling, and Rich's experience as CEO and his advice to MBAs working in climate. Welcome to the Wharton Current. Today we have Rich Riley, fellow Wharton graduate and CEO of Origin Materials, a carbon negative chemicals and materials company. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about Origin Materials today. Can you get us started by giving us an overview of the company and the company's history? Absolutely. So Origin has spent more than 10 years developing a highly proprietary technology that enables us to convert any form of cellulose biomass into a wide range of carbon negative materials. And the company was started by two guys, one of, one of whom is my co-CEO and, and co-founder, who is a brilliant chemist, and his other co-founder, Ryan Smith, who's currently our chief technology officer, also a brilliant chemist. And they set out to create a chemical process that could convert cellulose into a wide range of chemicals that would be cost competitive with oil-based materials and carbon negative in the process. And so a lot of biomaterials companies are not at all cost competitive with oil and reliant on all kinds of green premiums and things like that. But from day one, Origin was very focused and that led to a lot of really important decisions in terms of the feedstock we use, the process we use, the materials that we make to enable us to be cost competitive with oil. So. For the, for the first years, it was a lot of, a lot of science, a lot of experimentation. I was one of the earliest investors in the company over 10 years ago, which is how I first got involved. And about four or five years ago, Pepsi, Nestle and Danone came together and their competitors in their normal existence, but they came together to invest and get involved with the company because they really thought it could be the future of bioplastics. And so they would invest about $40 million in the company. All three joined our board and importantly, we're able to test our materials all the way through to fully blown water bottles. And a water bottle actually is a, a very hard thing to make in the world of plastics because it has to be perfectly clear, inexpensive, food grade, able to withstand, you know, being frozen and heated and stored and all these various things. And so they were able to, to really test our materials and really prove that the technology could be used to make a very challenging application like a water bottle. That's very impressive. And I know you recently won Fast Company's list of the world's most innovative companies of 2022. So you're getting the recognition that that deserves. A lot of, a lot of innovation and a lot of hard work along the way. And you might imagine that 10 years ago, the word decarbonization was not in any of our vocabulary. There weren't a lot of investors looking to invest in something like this. A process like this takes 10 years to develop, no matter who you are. And then when you're done, you get to build a billion dollar plant to, to make it scale, right? So a lot different than investing in a software company or, or, or other things that, that most venture capitalists and others get excited about. So long, long road on the development of the technology. And then, you know, about two years ago or so, we decided that the technology was really proven and the customer demand was really starting to ramp. 
And so companies were starting to make net zero pledges and search for ways to reduce their emissions footprint. And what we needed to do was get to scale as quickly as we could. And in our case, getting to scale required raising about $500 million. And so we chose to merge with a SPAC, which most of your listeners are probably familiar with. You know, people talk a lot about SPACs. We're, we're sort of the classic, what SPAC market was created for, a pre-revenue company with a proven technology, proven demand that needs a large amount of capital to scale. And so we successfully completed our SPAC merger last summer, went public on the NASDAQ literally a year ago and raised the money necessary for us to complete our first two plants. And so we've been running pilot plants um, for years. At the end of this year, we'll complete what we call Origin One, which is our first plant, which is in Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. And then our first world scale plant scheduled to be completed in 2025. And that will be in Geismar, Louisiana, in the Baton Rouge area. And from our perspective, sort of where the forest meets the petrochemical complex, which is the sweet spot for us because our feedstock is wood waste. So thick wood residues coming off of sawmills and things like that, you know, sawdust effectively. And so we need a million tons of that per year to um, feed the plant. And then the plant creates these, this wide range of materials, which we can, which we can talk about. It's exciting to me to hear you say that you have a lot more both strong customer interest and recognition by investors of how important it is and how, how much potential there is in the market. Because but often I hear people talking about how we might be able to wean ourselves off of oil for energy purposes, but it will be even harder to move away from petroleum-based materials to make so many of the goods we consume and developing those carbon neutral or carbon negative materials is probably equally important to decarbonizing. But the relative amount that we spend talking about that versus energy is pretty stark. So it sounds like you feel like you're getting the support from the market, the recognition from the market that you need. But I'd be curious if you have any thoughts to share on that difference in how we talk about decarbonization. Well, you, you said it exactly right. So as companies go on their net zero journey, and now, you know, most companies have, have set some sort of very public goal as to when they intend to achieve net zero carbon emissions. And when they go on that journey, the first thing you do is look at renewable power, look at your transportation and see if you can electrify that. And what you realize is that's only half your emissions footprint. And the other half comes from the products that are made. And to your point, if you think about all the investment that has gone into solar and other forms of renewable energy, all the investment that's gone into electric vehicles and battery technologies and all the press it gets, it's, it's, it's really incredible and it's fantastic. But there's been very little investment in the other side of how do you get the carbon out of these products? And so that's what we view as our addressable market is a, a trillion dollars in materials per year that's going to go through what we call a once in a planet transition from petroleum-based feedstocks to sustainable ones. And it really is the hard, it's the hard part of decarbonization. And when we engage with companies that are going on this journey and they realize for companies that make a lot of goods, they have to decarbonize the things they make. And there really are not that many great solutions for them out there. And, you know, it's one of the reasons when we started our go public process, we had a billion dollars in orders entirely from the packaging space. 
And as of our last earnings call, 18 months later, that had grown to $7.4 billion. And it expanded from packaging to automotive, textiles, apparel, toys, luxury goods, other chemical companies. And so there's just this enormous demand that we, we won't be able to build plants fast enough to meet this demand as these companies are, are, are really searching for solutions to how to get the carbon out of their, out of their goods. Yeah. Could you talk about how you take this feedstock and then you produce a few different kind of intermediate products and then where it goes from there and how you, how you get from that single feedstock to being able to produce this really huge range of products and materials? Sure. So we start with, with think wood chips. So a million tons of wood chips goes on one side and they go straight into a reactor and in that reactor is hydrochloric acid along with some other sort of proprietary origin pixie dust catalysts and, and, and other things. And what that does is, is really breaks that cellulose down and separates it into two key intermediates. The first is chloromethylperforone or CMF as we call it. And CMF is an incredibly flexible molecule that can be converting into a very wide range of things. But for our initial plan, what we've decided to do is to take that CMF and convert it to a paraxylene. And paraxylene is a, a large, the chemical the world consumes a lot of today. It comes from oil. It's made by most of the major oil companies. And paraxylene is one of the key ingredients in plastic and specifically PET plastic. And PET plastic is one of the largest types of plastic that's used. It's by far the most recycled. And in, in many ways, sort of the best plastic alternative versus the, the various different sort of flavors of plastic. And it's a, it's a hundred billion dollar plus market. And for a lot of us, we think PET, we think water bottle. It's also in polyester fibers. So all, all of our clothing has a lot of polyester fiber. It's in your carpets, it's in your car. It, it, it really is a pervasive material. And we very intentionally chose to, to go to that plastic first because it's a large market and because we make chemically identical PET plastic. So the, the material we produce is, is the exact same as the one that comes from oil, except it's carbon negative. And that's important from a market acceptance perspective. So it's what's called a drop-in material, which means if you're Pepsi or another consumer of PET, you can take our materials and you can blend them in with your oil-based materials. You don't have to change your machine tooling. You don't have to change your product. You don't have to do a whole lot more testing or approvals or certifications or anything like that, that you would, if it was a brand new material, but because it's chemical identical, it just drops straight in. It's a way of de-risking the market risk because a lot of biomaterials companies would show up with a, a brand new material and it could be a really interesting material, but the customer on the other side has to take that material and do really extensive testing and, and likely a lot of costs on their side to change things, to adapt to that material. And then frequently those materials cost three or four times the oil-based alternative, alternative, which at this point are, you know, it's, we've gotten very good at making inexpensive plastics and other materials from oil. So it's, it's a tough thing to compete with, but our process is, is so efficient from a cheap feedstock, efficient chemical process. And the fact that every carbon atom ends up in a saleable product really helps what are called in the industry, our techno economics, 
and, and help us be cost competitive with, with oil-based materials. One of the ways that we achieve that is a challenge with, with cellulose or biomass is, is how do you get the oxygen out? And so most people remove it as CO2. And so it goes up the smokestack and that's not good for your emissions footprint. In our case, we, we chemically dehydrate it. And so it goes out as water, which doesn't have a carbon atom. And so we retain the carbon, lose the oxygen and end up with these materials. So I mentioned, we make two key intermediates. CMF is the one. The other one is, is hydrothermal carbon called HTC. And it sort of looks like a used coffee grinds in terms of, of what it looks like. And that material can be used for, for a wide range of, of different applications, not plastics, but it can be used as a fuel source. For example, a lot of power plants that used to burn coal are being converted to burn biomass based fuels like, like ours can be used for. It also can be used for a material called carbon black, which is most famously what your tires are largely made of and anything black in your world has some amount of carbon black in it. Activated carbon, which is another uh, material, and it can also be used for agricultural applications. And so it's a, another one of our materials that's, you know, carbon negative and has a wide range of end applications. You're referencing a bit the landscape of other materials companies, and there are a number of other net carbon negative chemicals and materials companies out there, which seem to have different approaches, different technologies, starting with different feedstocks producing different things. Could you help us understand that landscape a bit more, both comparing to traditional chemicals companies, as well as some of the other net carbon negative companies that are trying to compete in the market? Yeah. So maybe the most macro point would be that 99% plus of plastics come from oil. So bioplastics are more of a emerging space than a big landscape today. And I would say in our case, we really don't have any direct competition. So I mentioned the $7.4 billion in orders in, in every case, that's a, a company choosing to switch from oil-based to our materials. And in none of those partnerships have we sort of competed with someone. It has never been like an RFP process or something where someone says, Hey, we're thinking about going with company XYZ or you, why should we go with you? Never comes up. It's literally just transitioning them from oil-based materials to ours. You know, that being said, there are a handful of companies in the space that are producing materials. They're either in an entirely different part of the materials ecosystem or complementary to ours. And so we can use biomaterials. So we need bioethylene, for example, to make our Paris Island. So it's great that there's people who are working on that and we need hydrogen great that people are working on green hydrogen. So, you know, when we look at the landscape, we look at it as a landscape that has been massively underinvested in. And so we see all of these emerging technologies as, as really complementary to ours and don't see any of them as especially threatening. And even if there were to be one that was similar or threatening, these markets are so massive and we're all so supply constrained that it's a, a long, long time till there's a real sort of competitive kind of issue. It's just this massive market that is, you know, in really dire need for these kinds of materials. And so the, the world sort of needs more of these companies, more of this investment and for many of them to succeed. I will say a lot of investment has gone into the recycling side, which is really, really great for the, for the planet. 
but still recycling rates are still sort of pitifully low. It's really kind of embarrassing. I think that we can't do recycling at high rates and effectively is, is really disappointing because most people at this point are happy to recycle and no one pushes back on recycling, but still, when you look at the numbers, it's, it's, it's really not great. And so fortunately, there's a lot of investment going into recycling technologies. And so recycled materials can be used and they do have lower carbon footprints than if you were using a new material. But many, many materials can only be recycled a, a few times or lose some of their functional qualities that make them less appropriate for certain applications. Like if you need something to be perfectly clear, recycled materials can, can have challenges getting back to certain clarity levels and things like that. But we view all of that investment and innovation as just a great thing for mankind and don't see any of it as threatening. Absolutely. And what I hear you saying is there's so many different materials that need to be made that at this point, there's just wide open space for lots of different carbon negative companies to be operating and you're just all making different end products at this point. Yeah, it's wide open. And fortunately, you know, the ESG acronym wasn't the thing a few years ago. Now there's a lot of investment dollars trying, you know, actively trying to, to support environmental investments. And so that's really helpful because most of these technologies, when you have to make something you're likely to be capital intensive. And so you don't fit into the tr traditional VC model of cloud-based stuff and enterprise software and SaaS and all that. And so you, you need some investors who are willing to have a longer outlook, write bigger checks, because you've got to build plants to, to make these massive quantities of these materials. And that investment is critical and fortunately it is increasing pretty dramatically. That makes sense. How do you decide what new materials to move into making? Yeah, it's a good question. So some of it is economic. So what are the, what are the techno-economics of, of getting from this material that comes out of our process to whatever end material? A lot of it's customer demand and customers, do, do they want it? Are they ready for it? In some cases, there could be long approval processes. So if you're going to use something that's going to hold food or it's going to go into a tire or something like that, there could be regulatory and other hurdles that you have to think about. That's why we've, like I said before, really tried to go to drop-in to start, to sort of fast forward that market acceptance. But we frequently will, you know, enter into a contract to sell our drop-in materials while at the same time starting joint development conversations on future products. And so, for example, we are working on a next generation of PET, which has all the good qualities of PET, but it has additional barrier qualities, which is something that's important for people. It basically means you can put more things in PET than you can today. And it's also degradable, which is another very helpful benefit, but it's a different, but it's different. So it does require more testing, more changes and that kind of stuff. And so the way we sort of sequence it is start with the drop-in easy stuff, easier stuff, and then, and then be working on the longer term stuff that requires more, you know, testing and development and things like that. So it sounds like it both happens that maybe you go to a company and say, Hey, I have a better version of what you're already using. Use ours instead. And sometimes it sounds like companies come to you and say, Hey, this is what my process looks like. Where could you fit in? Or could you develop a material that would be different than what we're already using? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, we, we would typically meet with a company, typically with their chief sustainability officer, chief technology officers, those, those sorts of leaders, walk them to our platform, show them the things that we're capable of making and have a conversation around where, where the most relevance is and where their priorities are. And in a lot of cases with PET, for example, if a company's buying a lot of PET, it's a big part of their emissions footprint. And so they've got a sense of urgency to reduce that emissions footprint, but they're also interested in, in next generation materials and things like that. And that's where we'll start working with them to partner on, on, on how do we make that transition over time. But, you know, a lot of them are under a lot of pressure to make progress on these net zero commitments. And so the, you know, they're, they're looking for sort of, you know, how do we, how do we first reduce our emissions footprint? And then we can talk about, you know, next generation materials. Makes sense. You've referenced a few of the ways that the materials you're making can be better in other ways, in addition to being carbon negative. Mm -hmm. What are some of those other benefits to clients, whether in terms of like cost or that the materials can do things that their predecessors could not? Sure. Yeah. So you're right that today we, we really lead with, a, it's got a lower emissions footprint, but in the case of PET, it's the exact same. And interestingly, the fact that it's the exact same is a huge benefit, right? Because it means they don't have to change everything. But when we talk about, you know, I, I use the example of PEF, which is the next generation PET. And so that's when you get functional benefits, like because it has more barrier qualities and properties, the customer could put things that they can't put in PET they could put in PEF and the things that are not going into PET today are, are largely going into plastics that aren't recycled, for example, or are much harder to recycle. And so if we can help them get things like, you know, fruit juices, for example, into a PET plastic or a PEF, a PET like plastic. Now we've moved it from a rarely recycled material into a highly recycled material. And we've also moved it into a degradable material. So what's great is most companies will agree that the first choice is to recycle something. Let's use it, recycle it, and you know, on we go. But if it does slip out of the waste stream, and we all know things do, and the plastic waste is a huge concern and challenge, it's nice if it does degrade over time, as where today's PET really doesn't degrade. And so that's another sort of functional benefit. And then there's another range of chemicals where we have other functional advantages. One of them is that we can get to get to chemicals that today have toxins in them. And I feel like, you know, I have four kids and, you know, my wife certainly has that book that I think a lot of moms have that says, you know, hazardous household chemicals and, and the reality that, you know, there are a lot of chemicals in our lives and some of them are, are, are not good for us. And we know that we're able to get to some of those chemicals without the toxins. And so that would be another, you know, major functional benefit from our perspective to, um, to be able to remove toxins from from things that are people's lives. That would be a huge benefit. Yep. I'm certainly, I certainly would rather buy materials without toxins than those uh, with them. Most people wouldn't. And you know, what's, what's interesting is in many cases, they're just not another alternative today. You know, it's not like anybody wants there to be toxins, but they're just, they're just not, not another way of doing it that, that's available today. And so we're working on developing things that can, that can provide a very safe alternative. I understand that as a, platform company, you're able to partner with a lot of chemical companies. Can you describe that dynamic, that dynamic of being a platform company and then how that enables you to interact with other companies in this way? And then how that enables you to structure those partnerships? Sure. 
Yeah, and it's it's a big difference because most biomaterials companies are created to make, they come up with the end material they want to produce and they kind of work back from that. And so they're they're effectively a one product company or a, you know, one family of products company. We're, we're really different than that. And we, we really are a very flexible platform from the feedstocks we can use. So we've tested over a hundred different feedstocks. We could use waste cardboard. We could use cotton t-shirts. We can use kind of any form of cellulose. And then we make these, these intermediates. And so we're very upstream from an industry perspective in terms of where those materials can go. And so it's a, it makes us a great partner for other chemical companies who their customers are demanding that those companies bring now lower carbon solutions, more sustainable solutions, you know, bio-based solutions. And unfortunately there's been a real lack of investment in R and D in that space over the last few decades from the world's chemical companies. They've been very focused on returning cash to shareholders and optimizing their processes and, and, and those kind of things. And so they come and partner with someone like us and they can take our intermediates and then further engineer them into, into very high value applications. And so we have a, a partnership with a large chemical company in Europe. They'll take our intermediate chemicals, further refine them all the way into a very high end component that will go inside the engine of cars. And so that's great for us. So we're, we're upstream. We, we never would have, you know, we, we don't know how to do that. We don't have the relationship with the automotive maker to, to know what should go in their engine. And I assume that's a long, hard process and a longstanding relationship. And so that's great for us and it's great for them. So they can, they can use us as a sort of building block to get to these higher value applications, which works for us economically, works for them economically, and in the end makes a customer very happy. Changing topics a little bit. I understand you're currently working on commercializing. You went public pre-revenue and building your first commercial scale facility, which I understand is ahead of schedule, which is great. So what is the current state of commercializing the company? Yeah, so we've been running pilot plants for years and the pilot plants produce sort of like several pounds of materials, kind of, kind of scale. And you use that for further testing, you use that to give samples to, to customers and potential customers and partners. And then origin one will uh, be mechanically complete at the end of this year. And so it's a, you know, it's a circa $150 million plant. It's, it's, it's big. It's in the realm of the chemical industry, sort of small, but that'll be very exciting for us. So that will be mechanically completed this year. We'll commission it early next year and we'll start producing materials in sort of the, you know, thousands of tons kind of scale. So a much bigger scale than we've had in the past, which will also take us from pre-revenue company to a company with revenue. And, um, and, and a nice commercial proof point of the technology scaling. So that's, that's an exciting milestone that's, that's on the horizon for us. And it's really our first capital project. So what's interesting in a company like ours, you spend 10 years basically in the laboratory and now you got to go build plants. Well, of course we don't have people know how to build plants. Cause that would have been kind of a silly thing for us to have when we're just working in a laboratory. So we've had to go out and, and hire people who know how to build these plants. And one of the, one of the great things for us is the talent we've been able to attract has just been incredible. So you can imagine there's a lot of talent in these big oil and gas companies and these big chemical companies. Um, there really weren't that many other places for them to work. 
frankly, if you're a world-class chemist, that's where the world's biggest chemistry challenges are being worked on, you know, and there, there aren't even that many startups in this kind of space. So for, you know, I spent most of my career in Silicon Valley and, you know, there's always interesting startups that you can go to and that's kind of what you do. Not really so if you're a world-class chemist. So with one of the benefits of our being public and having hundreds of millions of dollars in our balance sheet is that world-class chemist who spent their career at a major oil and gas company and is well compensated and, you know, all, all those good things, maybe wouldn't have been willing to go to a, a startup that's living round to round. But now that you're a public company and well-financed and you're working on these big engineering projects and they have a chance to go help improve the planet instead of, you know, doing things that are, are less, less good for the planet, shall we say. It's been amazing. So we've been attracting incredible talent from across the sort of legacy industry. And that really helps with what are called capital projects, people who know how to build these plants. And so we hire people who have built lots of these scale plants and, and really know what they're doing. And that's one of the reasons that our origin one facilities, you know, on schedule. And that's during COVID supply chain disruptions, you know, Ukrainian war, you know, all, all these things. And we've managed to stay on schedule. And that's a real testament to the talent we've been able to bring into the company. And as we look forward to build origin two, which is more than 25 times bigger than origin one. So a billion dollar plant, you know, it's the same talent and the additional talent we're bringing in to be able to execute against that capital project. And that one's scheduled to come online in 2025. And that one will make hundreds of thousands of tons a year of materials. And so you're not, you're really starting to talk big scale chemical plants. Yeah, that's massive. I am trying to picture how large that would be and I can't picture it. No, it's yeah, big. What do you think will change when you have that first commercial facility operational other than going from pre-revenue to revenue? Yeah, well, we, um, you know, we will have to get good at manufacturing. How do you keep the plant uptime where it needs to be? How do you keep the quality of the product it's producing where it needs to be? How do you deliver the products to your customers? The logistics come into play. So there's all, there's all those sort of things that, you know, you don't do when you're at pilot scale. And so now you have to have manufacturing teams and supply chain teams and logistics teams and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you have to really customer service, right. And, and you know, all the things that you do when you, when you're really commercializing. So, so they'll, they'll be a, we have to keep sort of, you know, adding muscles as a company, as we, as we rapidly progress through these stages. I understand you joined in October, 2020. Is that right? That's right. What has it been like to move into the sector at the CEO level, not having worked in this sector before? Yeah, it's a really good question. Maybe I'll give a little bit of my career context. When I've discussed this with other Wharton students, they've sort of liked the nonlinear trajectory of my career. But I, you know, I left Wharton undergrad, went to Wall Street to be an investment banker, like most of my classmates. And I ended up having an idea and, and partnering with my friend in the IT group at the investment bank. And, you know, we invented the toolbar and we sold that to Yahoo. And then Yahoo wanted me to come work for them and do corporate development and business development. And then I spent 13 years at Yahoo during its sort of very rapid growth phase. And I remember thinking almost every sort of advancement I got on paper, I was not qualified for. And so, you know, one point I went to go run Europe and I was like, well, I've been to Europe, but I, you know, not ever really did business there. And they're like, you'll figure it out. 
And one of the benefits of going into high growth companies is, you know, people sort of put you in opportunities and you figure it out. And so I did have a lot of career experience of things I'd never done before having to figure it out. And when I left Yahoo, I went to go be CEO of Shazam, which is the music app. And I had, the one thing I had done at Yahoo was the music part. I'd done almost every, every other aspect of it. So I had to go figure out the music industry. That was, it was very similar to this actually, in terms of other than it was apps and software, but very different, very different business. And we sold that to Apple. And so I was trying to think, what do I want to do next? And one of the things I wanted to do for this space of my career was something that could have a positive impact on the world. And I'd been an investor in origin for a long time and invested a fair bit over time because this is the kind of company where you, you know, you keep investing as it keeps growing. And for most of the company's development, they really were doing mostly chemistry in a lab, in which case there is absolutely nothing I'm able to assist with. But we decided two years ago that now it was time to scale. We got to go do a big fundraise. We've got to build out our commercial teams. We've got to dramatically increase the headcount. All the things that, that I had experienced doing from my tech career, unfortunately, my co-CEO and, and co-founder is, you know, I like to call him the Elon Musk of chemistry, just a brilliant technologist. And, and one of those sort of minds you think he's so incredibly talented in this field that anytime he spends not focused on that is like a very poor use of his gifts, you know? So how can we enable him to focus on that and let me focus on fundraising, scaling, all the administrative aspects of the business and things like that. And, and he's a great guy and we've known each other for a long, long time. And so I said, well, let's go for it. And we, you know, I came in as co-CEO and it's, it's actually been an incredible partnership. You know, we would get the question like, what is this whole co-CEO thing? You know, isn't somebody really the CEO or whatever else? And in, in our case, there was so much clear difference in, in skill set and expertise and so much mutual respect that it is, I, I kind of wonder like, why doesn't every company have co-CEOs? This is like such a, for us, it really, really does work well. And so I, I came in, spent a lot of time on the fundraise and on the going public process. I spent a lot of time with customers and things like that and have learned a, a working knowledge of chemistry. I think just from being around John and in our company full of chemists so much, but yeah, that's the way it's gone. It seems really fundamental that you were able to spend so long knowing each other before you became co-CEO, that you had a decade of trust and history that had been right. built up before you were co-CEOs together. I think about often about how, how, you, how you build trust with people who you are leading with and how, how can you build trust quickly. But it's really helpful if you don't have to build trust quickly. You get I know. To do it. So true. Yeah, we, we were very lucky in that and that there was a longstanding relationship, longstanding trust. And like I said, it's still a lot of mutual respect to where that that's all been almost effortless for us. In fact, people ask, you know, what do you guys do when you disagree? I'm like, well, we haven't really disagreed yet. So we'll let you know when, when, it, when it happens, but it, it, it's sort of, we have such clear separation of, of responsibilities. It hasn't been an issue. That's wonderful. As you are focused on scaling the company, what have been some of the biggest aspects of operations that have had to change or that you think will have to change in order to scale? Yeah. So one is we've had to hire at an incredibly fast rate. And so, you know, we're still at that stage 
where, you know, every hire is really important. And what's interesting when, when you go from a, when you triple the size of a company from a team standpoint in 12 months, you, you really got to watch culture, right? It's like, now most people are new. Most people are coming from very large companies that behave very differently than we do in terms of speed and, you know, just entrepreneurship and, and things like that. And so, so far it's, it's gone really well, but that's very top of mind for us. And everyone that we hire goes through a founder's interview and we only have two founders, you know, and some people that's where they don't, you know, they, everyone can want to hire someone and it happens that they don't pass the founder's interview, which is really sort of our, our way of, of maintaining that sort of culture and some of those sort of X factor things that are hard to, it's hard to interview for, but you can imagine we now have brand new people interviewing brand new people, you know, who really haven't been around us long enough to know what our culture's like and who tends to succeed here and who tends to struggle and things like that. And so that's a big one. Also, um, trying to rapidly identify, we don't have expertise for this. We need to go partner or we need to go hire. And, and in some cases we're going after specific materials where no one on our team has, has the level of technical depth or commercial depth that we need. And so in many cases, it's like, you know, the faster we can realize that and act on it, the better. And so that's something that so far we've done really well. And I mentioned just building billion dollar plants, right? That's a capability that we have to, to build. And then when you build these plants, you're contracting with large engineering firms and, and things like that. And there's plenty of ways to mess up those relationships or mess up those contracts or whatever else. And so, you know, hiring the right people, hiring the right advisors around us. One of the things that was fortunate for us as well was we were able to recruit a truly world-class board directors. And so our board of directors includes the former CEO of Clorox, the former head of R&D at Procter & Gamble, the former chief sustainability officer at Ikea, one of the top five executives at DuPont and, you know, and several other incredible resumes like that. And, and that's been great too, because we're still a, a little company, but we're, we're trying to become a, a world changing, put a dent in the universe company. And it, it's, it's really helpful to, to have that sort of board level that is very blue chip in the way that they think and act and are helping us make strategic decisions and, and, and things like that. So it, it's, it's, so it's a really interesting combination of sort of being small, but thinking big and trying to, trying to connect those dots. Yeah. You have me wondering how you pass the founders interview. <laughs> but it's okay if you don't want really to get out the secret. <laughs> What has this process been like for you personally? And maybe I'll tie to that question, a separate question, answer them separately, but what, what are you most proud of in the process so far? Yeah. So I'm, I'm really proud that we were able to raise the capital, which is one of the, one of my primary objectives when I came in, because raising that cap, raising enough capital to get to commercial scale is incredibly helpful. Helps you recruit that talent. Customers are far more likely to engage with you if you're fully funded to produce the materials you're talking about, as opposed to you're not. And so the alternative route is to sort of milestone by milestone private raises. And so, so really proud we were able to get that done. Really, really proud of how we've been as a public company. So being a pre-revenue public company for now a year, you know, we've done four earnings calls and met with 
thousands of investors and been to dozens of investor conferences and all that, and have been working hard to tell the story, earn credibility with public market investors, do what we say we're going to do. And <clears throat> there's a lot of ways to screw that up. In fact, a lot of our fellow sort of SPAC classmates have, have had a, have had a really tough go. And so I'm, I'm really proud that we've been able to accomplish that. And then, and then the talent we've been able to attract is incredible. And then I would say, I never would have thought our order book would go from 1 billion to 7.4 billion in 18 months. And so it grew by 1.8 billion last quarter alone. And so that's one speaks to the size of these markets, which I'm still getting used to. And I think, you know, they're just, they're just so massive that single customers can place, you know, multi-hundred million dollar orders. But I'm, I'm pretty proud. I'm pretty proud that we were able to, as I said before, get across the addressable market to go from packaging to apparel and textiles and automotive and in, in that wide range of companies in applications that quickly. And so one of the things I, you know, think speed is really important for, for a company like us. And so far we've, we've been really fast and kept our timelines on track and, and all that. So, so a lot to be proud of, but when you're a public company and you're pre-revenue and the world's watching, you know, you are on the quarterly treadmill. And so there's, there's certainly the continuous pressure to keep all the construction timelines on track, keep engaging more customers, keep advancing the products. And it's pretty intense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's exciting to watch from afar what you're doing. <laughs> A lot of the listeners in our audience are MBA students who are considering careers in climate startups or in climate jobs in general. What advice would you give students deciding what stage of company to join? Or even what do you do investment banking for industrials? Or do you join a startup? Or do you join a large traditional organization? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I wish I had a really good answer for you. But, you know, a lot of it's based on your risk tolerance. Unfortunately, a lot of startups, whether it's in, in this field or others, don't make it. And so how much failure would you be willing to, to potentially take from a risk perspective? I, I do think one of the things that can help those of us that are non-scientific and when I judge the work business plan competitions and things like that, I always think like, you know, go partner with that person in computer science, you know, or in our case, you know, go find that brilliant chemist and it can be a nice way for an, an MBA to have a technical part. Because a lot of this stuff is really technical. And even for the incredibly talented Wharton MBAs, you know, when you're looking to join a startup, assessing whether that technology is likely to work or not, or how hard it's going to be for it to work or how much capital it's going to take to make it work can be really hard, you know? And so it's really tough. So I, I think a lot of that comes down to risk tolerance. And in some cases, it's nice to, to, to maybe do what you've done and you start with a at a consulting firm or something where you sort of can, can see a lot of different things and, you know, maybe sort of also find your lane. Like maybe you're really passionate about solar or, you know, EV batteries or, you know, whatever the different, you know, parts of this ecosystem are. But fortunately, the tailwinds are enormous. So I've never been in a business that had so much tailwind where I feel like, you know, frequently there's new regulation that's going to make it easier. There's more investment dollars trying to go there. There's more talent trying to go there. Customers are being, they're under pressure to buy what you're doing. And so I, I do think there's enormous opportunity in this, in, in the space, but to your question, it's sort of an entrepreneurial adventure in itself to figure out how to, how to find your, your spot. In that. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, and it's a deeply personal question for pretty much everyone who listens to this podcast. Yes. Very relevant because all of us are trying to figure that out and, yep. things and trying to make choices with imperfect information. I will say what's one thing that's nice is most of the even service provider ecosystem, you know, increasingly has teams focused in, in these areas. So there are sort of the lower risk routes of, you know, consulting firms that when we work with a bunch of them, uh, even as origin and investment banks, and, you know, now we're covered by research analysts who are focused on the sustainability space. And, you know, they were once an oil and gas research analyst in many cases, and have, have, have transitioned. And so. I, I do feel like it started to be more pervasive across, you know, lots of different types of companies and firms and things like that, which I think will create lots of opportunities for MBAs and, and really almost no one has experience in it. So it's almost like the early days of the internet when, when I was at Yahoo and, you know, it's like, well, I don't know where it's like, well, like, well, no one does, you know, so go figure it out. And that's, that's kind of how, the, how this space is today. Yeah. Well, it has been wonderful having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your experiences. I always ask at the end, is there anything else that you want to share? Anything that you are excited about in the space that we haven't touched on yet? No, I think we touched on most of it, but I, I think this is a incredible world of opportunity in, in the overall helping companies decarbonize and achieve their net zero goals. And I think it's very rewarding. Jobs are hard, but if you can be in a job that has a real mission and a company has a real purpose that you can get excited about, it, it, it's, it, you know, it, it really does make it that much more rewarding. And I think there's going to be a lot of chances for people to have to build great companies while having a really positive impact on the planet and great opportunity for work MBAs. I could not agree more wholeheartedly. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this episode of The Wharton Current. A special thanks to our guest, Rich Riley of Origin Materials. If you're interested in learning more about Origin Materials, please visit their website at originmaterials.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>